This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Today's guest speaker solves problems through a research-oriented mindset. Join Armin Kralopian and I as we discuss why Virgin Racing believes in a collaborative world, how the data science ball at Booz Allen Hamilton has promoted an innovation culture, and why hackathons enable business use cases for the modern workplace. This is Humane. Welcome to Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and I will be your host throughout this series. Together, we will explore AI through fireside conversations with industry experts. From business executives and AI researchers to leaders who advance AI for all, Humane is the channel to release new AI products, to learn about industry trends, and to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Hey, humans, I'm pleased today to bring to you to the Humane Podcast, Dr. Armin Kurlopian. He serves today as the Chief Science Officer for Genpact, which is New York Stock Exchange listed with over 90,000 employees globally. They're a fortune company that focuses on gaining value from data through data science, analytics, machine learning, AI, and of course, digital transformation. Dr. Armin Kurlopian, thanks for being with us. Pleasure to be on the line, David. Awesome. Yeah, we had the opportunity to meet earlier in the summer when you were working on a really cool hackathon for AI and social good. Love to hear what were some of the results of that hackathon that we met up with in person? Absolutely, David. Yeah, it was quite an exciting event, you know, focusing a set of folks around AI for good. So we had over a dozen cities participate, nearly a thousand participants, and the project outputs were just fantastic. 
everything from using computer vision, teaching computers to see, to assess urban greenery, the project being to help understand the experience of citizens, to that of uh, making governments more transparent, using natural language processing, teaching computers to read. So absolutely fantastic, uh, fantastic event there. I think that's super important, especially with making governments transparent. I had the opportunity to sit in on a couple of teams and see the ideas they're working on, particularly in New York. So I was physically present for one of the events and you know, we're talking about recycling with new garbage cans and recycle cans and what's best so that a raccoon doesn't, you know, flip over a garbage can or what's best so that, you know, we can properly dispose of waste. But we were also talking about languages and languages in the city and how a city like New York has hundreds and hundreds of spoken languages, but the government only has about eight of them where there's translations from English and Spanish and Russian and Chinese and Korean and Arabic and Hebrew. And well, beyond that, maybe a couple others, there isn't a lot of accessibility there. So it was so cool to see all those ideas emerge. And I think AI for Social Good is a really emerging space. And I know that's not the only project that your team works on with AI for Social Good. What are some of the other initiatives you guys got going on? Yeah, and Ben itself was born out of one of our existing engagements. Uh, we do work with uh, Sir Richard Branson's electric race car team, Envision Virgin Racing. And the theme for the AI for Good event and uh, the challenge that uh, Richard put forward was around sustainability. And for sustainability to work, it hits on the item that you just highlighted, David, around accessibility. So whether it's information around languages and from a technical point of view, it's absolutely superb. We have all these open source libraries, something we very much focus on, Genpack, bringing that to bear in addition with our native R&D units. So it's quite the exciting portfolio of things. That's super cool. And of course, open source is continuing to eat up the world in data science and technology. You know, I think in the last 10 years, the software industry has quickly evolved into infrastructure as a service, where you have a lot of these tools, and now they can work with, say, you know, Terraform or Ansible or other different you know, infrastructure tools, which have now evolved into replicated and other automation techniques. I think in data science, we're seeing a lot of that as well, right? A lot of our packages that are open source are growing up in Python and Julia and R. And we're seeing now TensorFlow 2.0 has recently been released and came out of beta. What are some of the open source tools or packages that your teams are using? Yeah, so a number of the ones you referenced, you know, we do a lot of work in uh, Python and uh, we find, uh, so Scikit-Learn, uh, NumPy, SciPy, the whole suite there. Also importantly, data visualization, you know, for example, uh, Bokeh or even the stalwart matplotlib. And it's quite intriguing. And as David, as you highlighted, you know, the major cloud platforms, whether we consider Google Cloud Platform Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, and other players, it's increasingly clear the business model is around compute and storage. And what that leaves as a gap is domain-specific applications. So although there'll be a lot of raw methods that are available, whether it's around model building, data processing pipelines, to actually make a difference, you need to cross that last mile which is bringing these formidable methods to a specific domain, whether that's an insurance claims, 
whether that's in drug safety or whether that's in supply chain. And for me, that's really the most exciting area to work in, taking all these waves of innovation and transforming industries. So why do you think that the business today is so focused on compute and storage? I want to share why I think that is, and I want to hear your thoughts there. So I know this year, Amazon Web Service, so one of the big cloud platforms you mentioned, they announced all their revenue numbers, and they said, in 2019, less than 1% of our revenue comes from AI and data science algorithms. So this software like recognition for facial performance, and even Amazon Transcribe to go from voice to text and back and forth is less than 1%. And they said, yeah, actually over 80% of our revenue is compute and storage. So why do you think that is? Yeah, I would say the two are actually highly linked. And the, the revenue number I would like to hear is around how much revenue there's pull through. The AI-led capabilities, how much corresponding storage and compute is used to support that. You know, let's take an example here. You know, by and large, we think of calling an Uber or a Lyft a digital process. And in actuality, it's minimally digital. There's the matching algorithm, which is key. So specifically, which driver should go to get which passenger and what's the route. But 99% of the job is manual. It's someone driving, someone stepping into a car. So with that, it becomes... A key question for AI applications, at what points can the interventions be so formidable, so transformative that they in some ways become the process? Hmm. That's really fascinating. And I think what we think about with Lyft, with their level five labs and Uber, with their self-driving initiatives, with Carnegie Mellon and, and also out in Phoenix, that that is a process we're going to move towards, right? But here we are in 2019, and I think that's still beginning. Maybe some predictions have said we might be there by 2025, maybe sooner, maybe later. I think that's still to be determined. But we even see competitors in that space like Neuro, which is a startup in California that already has self-driving grocery delivery. We've started to see uh, in the summer in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, there's been a couple startups having self-driving shuttle buses to bring startup employees between different buildings as well. But I think those have all been in very controlled environments, right? Very focused lines where there's not much deviation or risk to have noise. And you know, what's interesting is one of the professors I work with on a daily basis, we had this conversation the other day, we were going through the history of AI and, and the evolution back from like the 1950s with McCarthy and, and all of that. And we said, do you know, people were really bullish on self-driving back in the 1970s and 1980s. In fact, researchers, you know, staked their entire career on it. They were at the Stanford Labs and they were out in California. And in the middle of nowhere, they were drawing paint on lines on these roads and trying to train these cars to self-drive. And we saw there was a big delay in that, right? The delay is now we fast forward 35 years and we think we're on the precipice of self-driving. And sometimes it shows that you know, you need modern breakthroughs to help that be possible. And that breakthrough is, from a data science perspective, having these more affordable compute and storage options, as well as now these algorithms that have grown up in systems that can almost instantaneously 
produce results. So I think that's super fascinating. And I know I'm diving very much into the self-driving phenomenon because, well, that's what a lot of the news talks about nowadays. But to make that relevant for what you guys are working on, a lot of your product and research is in the medical industry and in the bio industry. And you mentioned insurance claims and drug discovery. Any new trends or new projects or opportunities you're seeing that you can talk about in those spaces? Yeah, certainly, David. And if we consider you know, autonomous vehicles as an example, there's parallels both in terms of how an organization should ratchet up and consider its business model with increasing levels of uh, autonomy. And it has implications across a wide number of areas. So for example, you can map autonomous vehicle progression, the known scale one to five commonly used, to that of surgical robots. And then as you go through each segment, you have really fundamental questions around risk, reward, access, where is the surgical robot? You know, what are the alternatives? Is there no surgeon around? So these trade-offs are quite profound. You know, for autonomous vehicles, you have over 40,000 folks with fatalities or injuries nationally. And that's a significant challenge. Similarly, you have quite stark challenges around access to healthcare. And I believe a key item here in going through these scales is the interface and triage, interface with humans, and triage of autonomy. So let me give an example. Uh, Uber and Lyft are actually poised to use autonomous vehicles well before mass consumer market. And that works because, as we discussed earlier, there's the criticality of the matching algorithm, the routing algorithm, but also the triage algorithm. So as a user, if an autonomous vehicle only works 10% of the time, that's not really super helpful for the premium that would come in. However, if you are a ride-sharing company and you have the ability to say, oh, 10% of my requests in a city are easy, they're straightforward, the paths are clear, I can dispatch an autonomous vehicle as opposed to a human one. As autonomy ratchets, well, you can shift the ratios. You know, if it's medium, you'll send it half the time. Similarly with surgical robots, similarly with insurance claims, similarly with drug safety, this gets to that second point around interfaces. How do you have risk-adjusted triage for work for expert operators as autonomy picks up? And as we're seeing, the actually the highest performance systems are actually a combination of the two whether the human is as a fail-safe or there is a specific instruction from the human for the more rote aspects of the operation. So this is so interesting. When we're thinking about surgical robots, insurance claims, drug safety, it sounds that there's a parallel that we can make between the five levels of autonomous vehicles because it's not just for vehicles, but autonomy everywhere. And so I want to dive into that because for listeners on the show, not everyone may actually know what are the levels of autonomy, right? And this is in the tech world. We've been talking about it quite a bit, especially with Lyft and Uber. So let's dive into them. And 
each level, love to hear um, both of our thoughts on where we think it is. So level zero, the beginning, this is like prior to data science and AI, this is no automation. So this means you're just driving the car. This means maybe you're using cruise control, perhaps, or you are using a stick shift or you're just driving and there's no signals, no nothing telling you that something's going wrong other than, oh, your gasoline is low, right? Or oops, there's an engine failure. So I think that's still where most cars are today. Anything prior to probably 2015 or 2016. There are some items in terms of automatic braking, mm-hmm. uh, lane distance, you know, getting into the, the higher ones. But yeah, by and large, by volume of cars, up until a few years ago, we've been at zero. Right. Yeah, we've been at zero. And I I think we can say that up until a few years ago, the same was in medical, right? Whether it's insurance claims or drug safety or even surgical robots, the robots would be completely controlled by the human or the drug safety. You'd have many analysts who are making sure everything's by the books or even insurance claims. It's being completely processed by a human, but we're starting to see that shift, right? That transition. And so when we move from level zero, which is no automation, to level one, which is driver assistance, that's, I think, a lot of where we're at today. So the human is still in control, but there are certain automation capabilities like lane assist technology. So if you're driving at night and you like suddenly are dozing off, right, the lane can take you back into the center. Or as you mentioned, if you're in the winter and it's uh, snowing or there's ice and the braking system can better apply itself or can better move so that you don't skid or so that if you get close to a car, it brakes faster. So the driver assistance, I think that's really what we've been looking at perhaps in almost every car maker in the past few years. Yeah, exactly right. And tying it to different industry areas, I would liken this to a kin of alerts. So in financial crime or anti-money laundering, simple rule-based alerts. And there's so much to go beyond that. Mm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's probably what we're starting to see also with surgical robots, right? A surgical robot now could have on it different sensors and it can indicate where the temperature is changing on the human or, you know, fluids need to be replaced or whatever specific sensor. So I think we're starting to see that also in medical. And so level ones, I think a lot today. I think in 2019, it's really where we're at. But I think level two is the first big shift that we're starting to see. And this is where companies like Tesla really got in. They said, we're going to be at level two or above. And most of vehicles can do that. So level two means you're having the driver assistance, but it's advanced. So it means it can control braking and predict for you before you're going to crash into a car. Or it could steer without your hands on the wheel. Or it can adjust the cruise control speed based on the traffic of vehicles around you. So these are these almost like little smarter features based on a lot of sensors. And level two is I think where most cars are beginning to get in 2018, 2019. And perhaps all new cars will start being at level two next year. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing parallels, you know, at this level in the area of customer service. So this mapping, David, as you're highlighting, is absolutely essential. And we view it in just that way. When we do a collaboration with a Fortune 100 company, sometimes our 
collaborations, our deals will last three, five, seven years. So we very much look to the evolution of technology and what can be done, particularly as we can supply for these marquee initiatives, you know, thousands of people on a single site for a single customer, and then expand that out globally. And so customer service at this level of autonomy comes to mind, whereby instead of it just being a phone call as it was years prior to that of the apps being increasingly self-service, the proactive, you may recall, you know, the need and many people still do call in, you know, their credit card saying, hey, I am, you know, traveling to this country, don't block my card, you know, with geolocation and adding of alternative data. Even a small item like, hey, you can ping my phone and get my latitude and longitude once a week not to block my card when I'm on vacation or business travel. I mean, we have instances at this level of autonomy where a little bit of extra data goes a long way for the user experience. It's super interesting, right? And I know John Maida out in the Seattle, Portland area talks a lot about how the customer service industry has evolved into a customer experience industry. And so we have this new term CX, which has been a lot of that evolution. And and you're right. I think both of us, we travel a lot. And when I'm in different countries, you know, there's almost this expectation today that my credit card company knows I'm going to travel. So like, do I as the human need to really call you and tell you, between dates X and Y, I'm going to be here. So please don't block my credit card. Is there some smarter, you know, AI assisted intervention to say, oh, yeah, you know, based on David's profile, that seems quite normal. So, you know, we're not going to flag that. We're not going to put them in this situation, but uh, we'll still have a human, you know, double check that. The human will augment, they'll assist, they'll be there to ensure everything's going smooth. And it sounds like that's where we're moving, not just in the cars, right, where you could potentially let the machine take over a little bit, but also in these systems with your credit cards, right? You could let the machine help run the processes, but then you'll still have humans for anti-money laundering and, you know, KYC and all these other processes that you got to ensure are checked with compliance. Uh, The use cases are abundant from supply chain to areas in finance and accounting, like order to cash, you know, these very disciplined process focused areas that are in some ways the backbones of industry really do matter for uh, getting value from data and a focus on customer experience. So I couldn't agree more with your comments, David. And that is indeed our a key part of our thesis and our go-to market, just that value from data as per digital transformation, as well as a focus on customer experience. We've gone through lengths of research with executives around the world on this topic to that of structuring, structuring our organization around these key competencies. Uh, We have an initiative, for example, called Genome, where we took a skills inventory of our 90,000 staff And we've mapped out learning paths along these lines from analytics, machine learning, design thinking, agile methodology. So as a large workforce, we can be ready to serve our clients that much better while bringing to bear advanced digital technology. So 
all the focal points are absolutely around data, value from data and customer experience. Now, I would love to take a fun tangent with you because you just brought up learning paths and for myself, learning and development and design thinking and pedagogy and all these topics are super fascinating. Our lives did not intersect, but they could have actually with one of your uh, former clients. You've done a lot with Booz Allen Hamilton. So a few years back, I also built out a lot of their learning paths to um, grow their team into data science and data analytics. And it's so amazing to see digital transformation and you know, whether it's a company like Booz Allen Hamilton or now with Genpact, I'm sure you've seen the opportunity of what digital transformation looks like for all your different employees and wanted to hear about how do you think with your thesis on digital transformation to get each and every person to the future of work or to be future skilled and prepared, whether that's through reskilling or upskilling from today into 2025 and beyond. Yeah, certainly, David. And, you know, one of the initiatives we had, you know, was around the field guide to data science. We wrote with a number of esteemed colleagues. It was to enable folks working with algorithms or making decisions with algorithms to have a bit of a roadmap. Part of the book actually had an algorithmic guide. And that tying into what we discussed at the top of the call regarding AI for good, we launched the data science bowl. And uh, what we see with initiatives like these is that dovetailing with open source, the pace of the evolution of these packages, software packages that are available, that an individual can say, yes, I want to learn. Yes, there are MOOCs, massively online open courses I can engage in. And it's unprecedented opportunity for individual learning. As an organization, we also consider collective intelligence. So this idea of upskilling an individual, but what does that mean also for a sub-team or department or initiative? And there's all sorts of fascinating patterns around how a set of individuals upskilling in a certain way on a team can materially boost the team performance. If the upskilling of the individuals happens in a particular way. So examples range from launching a web application to doing an alternative risk model in a financial institution where you need folks to stretch just a little bit to disrupt the status quo of doing things. So yeah, I'm quite passionate about uh, education lecture at university quite, quite often. And what this really comes down to is we've, you know, years prior, we talk about computer literacy is around digital literacy. So one of the things we see when we bring to bear, for example, supervised machine learning, classification-based tasks, as an example, in industrial processes, what we find is that the domain experts that see that output, for example, the machine learned features, which at first can be somewhat counterintuitive, actually to a domain expert could mean something profound. In a customer service context, that could mean, oh, because of the way the machine is learning the patterns here, I spot a process improvement need. And so this, you know, the it's not that everyone's going to be, you know, writing algorithms, but part of digital literacy will be around, hey, 
this recommendation engine for a product is acting this way, it probably means there's an opportunity if we launch this product or if we redesign our processes in another way. And that skill is in some ways the, the inverse of customer experience. It's around uh, organizational building or the experience of uh, line operators or staff within a company. And so it's quite a, it's quite a human high empathy activity coming up with these masses ramps and automation. That is so fascinating because, you know, talking about having a machine do a specific task over and over to a human capable level, right? So 95% accuracy or better. And then to have humans supervise that and say, oh, this is interesting. The recommendation said X. So are we good with that? Do we want to change that or tune that recommendation to improve? I think that is where we are right now. And I think that is this evolution and this new wave of AI where a lot of investment, a lot of um, opportunities, a lot of ventures have been growing. A lot of clients have been saying, this is where we want to get to. And I shared earlier on our episode today about now in the Brooklyn Navy Yard in New York, there's now a startup that's using these shuttles that can move from point A to B. And it's this repeatable process, controlled environment where there's very little deviation or risk for noise. And that in our model of getting to level five for driving is actually known as level three. So that's level three, which is the conditional automation. It's where we have these tasks of automation that do require sensors and certain processes that are being tracked, where a human does not necessarily need to supervise every minute, but then the human can take over or they can adjust the model. And I think whether you're learning and providing adaptive programming for your different employees and clients, or particularly you have, as you said, a recommendation engine that you're going to change, the human could leave it alone or they can move in to change that over time. Yeah, and you know, highlighting this, you know, what does it mean for humans when different industry areas hit level five? And if we were to go even before automobiles to to horses, as an example, horses served fantastically for hundreds, thousands of years. At some point, it came to this need that we needed, we wanted, we desired to go faster and further. The nature of transportation changed. And indeed, there is the nostalgia of you know, something like horseback riding. Urbanization, cost pressures, all these items came where transportation was changed and we had automobiles. What's happening now is actually quite similar to that. The nature of transportation is changing so that if we have level five vehicles, well, that means the human time, when a human interacts with something, it's really precious. And in this case, it'll have nothing to do with driving the car. It'll be everything to do with working, spending time with family, entertainment, learning. And so transportation will then shift again from, hey, you're on a horse. It's really slow. It's not serving your time well. It's going to change. You're going to miss the horse because of the nostalgia. That exact same framing for automobiles will hold. And it, it could be that for automobiles, it could be the nostalgia that gets people back on track. You know, we have profound safety needs around, uh, you know, our roadways around the world. And so 
what this culminates to is that when a human touches something, that is a precious moment in time. And often it's framed exactly the opposite. Hey, let's just match the human automation level and call it a day. These transformations are actually about if a human makes a judgment on a document, on a piece of data, that must be learned, that must be generalized. In the same way, if a machine has churned through a million documents, transactions, then a human should take inspiration and say, what does that mean for new business opportunity, learning opportunity? So I believe very strongly organizations that view it in this way, the preciousness of human time will be the ones that succeed and organizations that view time as a commodity are missing actually the most formidable mark of the AI revolution. Sure, that makes sense. And and thinking about level five, I mean, that sounds amazing, right? Like, I can't wait for level five, you know, especially as researchers that we both are in the industry, it, it does create so much opportunity, but we're not there yet. And that begs the question, what's level four, right? If level three is this assisted and level five is like pure bliss, human time available. So, uh, sorry, level five is pure bliss, human time available. Level four is exactly what you just described. So the machine is running these documents, millions of documents with a predefined task with the opportunity to come up with recommendations, but it's still, if you will, geofenced within a certain border. So it's not going to go off kilter and start becoming some bot or reporter that starts writing gibberish or inventing a new language or coming up with something very abstract, but it's going to have tasks that it can work on. And based on all that training and compute and storage, effectively solve the entire task, whether it's driving from destination A to B or writing a report on a stock and its annual report and what that means for the company next year, it can go through that entire life cycle of the task without any human interaction at all. But the human could still, you know, take back control if they want. So what it would be is that this geofence or this task would be limited so that, you know, if you're outside that task, you can't perform it. And I think we're moving to level four mostly because of privacy and fear and concern and not really an understanding of AI and automation. And that's like how you just mentioned, Armin, right? You know, what type of organization are you going to be? One that's all about the human and giving back time and this precious resource. So we are thinking of expanding into new industries and new opportunities and new business, or are you going to commoditize time? And I think the world is thinking about both of those a lot right now. And we've started seeing that with data, right? With GDPR in Europe and, and these other initiatives in the US. And we're starting to see now that even with certain AI applications like facial recognition and how much do we want the machine to do that versus not. And, you know, I just for the first time a few weeks ago took a flight and uh, that flight particularly had me have my face scanned, right? My face was scanned and it said, oh, you're approved. No need to talk to the agent. You can board the flight. So that in essence is a level four. And you might ask, why is that level four? Well, I didn't need to speak to the agent, but 
if it did accidentally not recognize me or if I wanted to, I still had the opportunity to talk to the gate agent. So that would be level four. And car-wise, we're getting to maybe get there. I know Tesla and Ford and GM and a few others are, are working on it, but that's still a tough, a tough part to achieve. You know, and David, as you, as you're highlighting here, you know, we're at a very exciting time and it's really around data use, data rights, and also aspects related to culture. You know, these examples are quite striking. And, you know, as a society, we need to be very thoughtful in terms of how we want our data used. And, you know, the example you just gave around transportation, specifically flights, you know, there's throughput implications. And then as, you know, as you're leading to, there's, there's risks around identity. You know, I in large am very optimistic. A lot of the most striking AI use cases are around things that are quite foundational, like that of uh, sorting of work. So let's take our email as an example. You know, we've had email filters for quite some time. They've been working better over the years. And we have things like priority inbox or focused inbox, depending on what email application you use. Now, most of industry is actually not geared up that way. There's whole triage steps of which insurance claims should be processed in what order. There's, you know, there's timestamps for financial transactions, items associated with potential planning challenges and supply chains. And what's quite striking here is that in many industry areas, these work items are done first in, first out, namely a a human on a team of a thousand picks up a shared work queue, which is like a email shared email inbox is an analogy, and they're just sort of working on it as it comes in. And then there's a there's a lag, there's a lag in when a document is touched. And you know, even on a personal level, we know that must be odd because you know when we open our email in the morning, we just don't look at the first one in our spam folder, we sort of triage, you know, by the subject name, who sent it. So I think, you know, we can definitely focus on these, these use cases around privacy. I'm most excited about the ones around getting our industrial backbones to just work better. And that involves quite mundane things like document sorting and uh, triage and uh, so certainly, David, you know, this item around, you know, personal data, government data, we're going to see this be fleshed out in the coming years. And uh, increasingly, this requires companies to engage with governments so that industry can advance, uh, but it's also done by doing right by society. And again, this is more aligned to the approach of humans plus algorithms working in creative ways with data, as opposed to just saying, oh, this is the automation level. So uh, yeah, absolutely non-trivial challenges you bring up, David. That's incredible. And whether it's with businesses or with government, as you've mentioned, to get to full automation, I think one of the themes you've been sharing over and over throughout our session today is alternative data. How important it is to have access to data and large amounts of it so that whatever system you are building, you can create the best 
possible system. And that requires different sources, different quantities of data. And this alternative data industry has been growing so much. I had the opportunity in the late spring to attend an alternative data conference in New York City. I didn't even know those conferences exist. Conferences just for, you know, would you like to buy data? Right? Would you like to buy geolocation, GPS data? Would you like to access this for your service, for your product? So you can better create automation that provides a better customer experience so that you can better serve your clients and ultimately give us more time to get to level five, which would be in that car, sitting, drinking a mimosa or whatever is your preferred beverage, reading a book, playing Fortnite, having an Oculus Quest or Rift on, playing virtual reality while the car's driving, taking your conference calls, anything, and your time is freed up, liberated to work on more cognitively challenging, advanced tasks. And that process, that thought is like, that's amazing. Like there are Billions of hours globally that could be freed up if we can get to level five full automation. And it's not if we get there, right? It's when we get there and we're on that process. And I choose to believe in the optimism path that you take as well, that humans plus machines, humans plus algorithms, fourth industrial revolution. This is an exciting time where anything is possible. And I think we're going to move there and wanted to, you you know, find out also from yourself, from what you've started seeing and how everything's evolving for your industry and your clients, what do you see as some of the takeaways or new trends that are emerging that people should start thinking about today so they could be a part of this movement from level zero to level five? David, I believe this hits on something we're talking about learning. And in many large organizations, governments, companies, nonprofits, in terms of skill need, traditional analysis is based on uh, quantitative data. And what I'm highlighting here is that bringing in even a little bit of unstructured data is non-trivial, uh, like text or images, you know, pulling out structured information, useful information from that unstructured data. So is the geolocation, geotagging example, all sorts of value to be had around getting that data engineering right. So for organizations to be quite disciplined about doing that fusion of, we spoke about a credit card example. You know, most people are comfortable with that trade. Hey, I use my credit card or banking app anyway. I definitely don't want my card to be blocked or I'm stranded somewhere. But for that to be done properly, you know, agreements need to be in place, the terms and conditions need to be set, and uh, organizations need to execute technically, get partners that can help them execute while keeping the customer experience focused. So I believe this is one of the most exciting things we've seen in these open source communities is this working with unstructured data and uh, the bindings with uh, other data sets. So uh, one thing I'm definitely seeing across organizations is that because it's technically non-trivial to merge in even a little bit of unstructured data to the way traditional business is done, 
that's a major blocker for it to happen, let alone items about, you know, launching a new product or items around business strategy. But I think, you know, folks, you know, citizens should be engaged with society, governments, their representatives for fair use of the data, fair trade data, if you will. You know, in a consumer goods context, we very much care, you know, how our products, what we eat and what we drink are, you know, sourced ethically. I believe we're on the, the cusp of something quite similar with data. And that is something significant individuals around the world can do. And that is something uh, organizations can do, whether they're business to business or business to consumer working with data. That is all super cool. And you've heard it here first on the Humane Podcast. We've talked about it over several episodes, but we are seeing the emergence of data as a service and data science as a service and the evolution of being able to work with analytics and digitally transform. Wow, we've learned so much today. And Armin, such a pleasure to walk us through level zero to level five. I mean, that is a lot of fun. And I'm so optimistic for the future. So thanks so much for being with us today on the Humane Podcast. My pleasure, David. Hey, humans. Thanks for listening to this episode of Humane. My name is David Jakobovich. And if you like Humane, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or Luminary. Thanks for tuning in and join us for our next episode. New releases are every Tuesday. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.